0: Today is April 1st, 2016, and this is episode 297. This program is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Cryptocurrency is a new field of study. Consult your local futurist, lawyer, and investment advisor before making any decisions for yourself. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin, a twice-weekly show about the ideas, people, and projects building the digital economy and the future of money. My name is Adam B. Levine, and today we shadow LTB host Stephanie Murphy at the recent Texas conference. From Cointalk to Doria Nakamoto, Bitcoin ATMs, to the collaborative community-based ideology of cooperatives, from the seemingly simple wish to not finance causes one does not support, to the competition working to be Bitcoin's 2.0, there's a lot to talk about. This episode also includes the first show within a show on LTB. We're very pleased to share the first installment of Smart Law, Pamela Morgan's look at the legal landscape where we'll get to know smart contracts in the months and years to come. But first, Coin Talk, CryptoKit, Crypto Cards, and Dorian Nakamoto. One of these things is not like the other.
1: This is Stephanie with Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm at the Texas Bitcoin Conference, and I'm here with Kyle from Coin Talk. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? Good. You're an old friend. You've been on the show before.
2: I have. Thank <laughs> you for having me on. In fact, I, I caught uh, you actually isolated the snippet of yourself from my show and put it on your blog. And I was going to send you a message and say thank you for that because I listened to it and there was some high praises. So thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, and thanks for open sourcing your show so that I could promote it and everything. Um, how are you enjoying the conference so far?
2: So far, so good. It's, uh, it's been crazy. I didn't know I was coming until like last minute. Um, basically, I've got so much going on in Toronto now. We're trying to get the CoinTalk Studio all set up and uh, basically decided on Monday that I'd be coming out. And so uh, it, it's been a rush, but it's been good.
1: Oh, start packing. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'm leaving like tomorrow morning as, as well. So it's like I'm in and I'm out.
1: Right, so okay, you're from Canada, what are the diff, and you're very active in the Bitcoin community, what are the differences you see when you walk into the US and uh, the way that people use Bitcoin and buy and sell Bitcoin? I know you got lots of ATMs up there, but here, We apparently have to give our fingerprints.
2: Yeah, apparently. Um, Well, the first thing I noticed coming down to Texas was that everybody's saying (laughs) y'all. So I thought that was kind of funny. Yes. Um, That being said, though, uh, the differences that I see between Canada and the States, um, for whatever reason, and maybe this is legislation or maybe this is just political parties uh, being lax in Canada, uh, we've been able to get away with a little bit more. Um, we don't need to follow as strictly the KYC, at least not yet. Um, now that's changing. So right now all we need to do for verifications with ATMs up to $10,000 is a phone number. Um, so that's been tremendously liberating in the sense that people can come in, get a text message confirmation and get their Bitcoins uh, without having to go on record. Um, I'm a bit of an anarchist at heart. Um, and so for me, when I had to theoretically... Like when the, the RoboCoin came to Vancouver and you needed to do the palm print, I was like, ugh, is that where we're going with this? Because I agree with your sentiment that I don't necessarily want to bow to the regulators, you know, and, and, and I want to push this movement into or, the free space.
1: Or give up biometric data that could be stolen by just regular criminals, you know?
2: Absolutely. I, I've switched to Android now, and uh, part of the reason was because of the blockchain app being yanked. But the other reason is that I just can't deal with... Uh, Fingerprint scanners. It's like, I just don't want that technology. And the fact that it might become de facto, you know, I'm not a big fan of that. So,
1: right. So, um, tell me more about what projects you're working on right now.
2: So, right now, um, I'm working on CoinTalk. Um, basically, we're trying to flesh it out into a full video show. We're going to try and switch to a live model, so that's really been taking up a lot of wow, money.
1: Wow, that's a lot of production on yeah, a live video yeah. show.
2: Yeah, well, basically what we want to do is we want to set it up so that we have a switcher. Um, the problem with the show, especially when you're dealing with video and file size and all that kind of stuff, is that you need a beast to do the editing. So if we can switch that to a live model, uh, hopefully by the end of March, we'll at least be able to, or I'll at least be able to get up and walk away and have it be done you know, and be it out. Um, I can
1: really relate to that as a longtime podcaster, and, and I'm sure with video it's ten times worse. You know, have, having to edit everything. It's much easier to do a live show and just live with the mistakes. <laughs> yeah,
2: absolutely, absolutely. So it's kind of like you have to play the balance between being good enough to be live, and also you know minimal That's, editing. That
1: too, you have to be good enough to do live.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I want to quote uh, what's that guy, uh, Bill O'Reilly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so I've got that on the go. Uh, I'm also working on a few side projects. Um, I'm doing uh, advertising for CryptoCards, which is an offline wallet solution that uh, uses laser-etched aluminum cards. Um, you can check that out at CryptoCards.co.
1: Oh, you know, let's talk about that, because I saw uh, uh, some of the prototypes yesterday. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're prototypes or the, the actual real thing, but you had some in your wallet, and they were really cool. It's basically a paper wallet, but it's not paper. It's etched metal, like you said. Mm-hmm. and. uh you've got your public uh, uh, deposit address or verify address in there. And then you've also got a private key, but it's, it's encrypted in such a way that if somebody physically stole your card, they wouldn't be able to get your coins because you have to have an associated password with that private key. Is that Did I get that right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So CryptoCards is another company that's based out of Toronto, and basically the idea is that uh, they generate laser-etched aluminum uh, offline wallets. And so you go to the website, you download a GitHub package to generate the wallet offline. You can do Bitcoin, Litecoin, uh, Peercoin, and Dogecoin. And effectively, uh, you download the package, you encrypt it yourself, and and you upload the keys so they're never holding on to your passphrase and basically when you get it in the mail you get a slick card it's waterproof crumple proof it won't rust or corrode it's fireproof up to 600 degrees and so it's taking the concept of an offline wallet but it's really extending it over time it's time resilient and it's element resilient um, so an I, extra security feature in there with the password. Absolutely. And in fact, a lot of the users, um, from my understanding, are scanning them into wallets like Mycelium and using them as viewing addresses. And so you can monitor your public address, never take the wallet online, but you can verify that your funds are there. And should you lose your phone or whatever, you still have the card in like a safety deposit box or under your bed or buried in the earth or wherever you want to use it. Uh, I think there's a real need for offline wallets, and so I'm glad that there's new offline wallet solutions coming up.
1: Me too. And one thing that I really notice is there are a lot of uh, sort of physical Bitcoin or kind of uh, offline wallet, physical offline wallet solutions that are coming out. But, you know, you don't want to necessarily have a, for instance, a, a physical Bitcoin or a silver round with a private key on it that you have to break into to access. You want something that's like a card, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that you can easily carry around, and that doesn't cost a lot to manufacture. That's another thing. You yeah,
2: know. exactly. The, the prices are, I think they, they sell for 12 bucks. Um, the cool thing about it is that you can actually get like a pri- uh, public-only key, and then you've got a bigger QR code, and you can keep that in your wallet. There's no risk of somebody brute-forcing your BIP38 uh, passphrase, though that's near to impossible anyways. Um, but the cool thing about those cards is that you can take them out at ATMs, for example, and scan them at the ATM and send it directly offline. So there's functionality like that, which is really cool. It actually minimizes the time that it's in a hot wallet.
1: Yes, so. that is very, very cool. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, I don't mean to knock the other types of solutions, too. I'm sure there are lots of people who want sort of more permanent kinds of cold storage, like the physical bitcoins and the, the silver and gold integrated ones. But there's definitely a place for plastic, too.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, aluminum in this case. Aluminum, I think yes. They're going to offer uh, carbon fiber, marble, all sorts of cool things coming up. Um, the other thing is that people are waiting on hardware wallets and hardware wallets are going to be really cool, but they're just not here yet, you know what I mean? And so it's kind of like, we need the solution that we can have today in a certain regard. And, and these things are pretty cool. So.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So,
2: so let's talk about this Satoshi Nakamoto unmasked thing for okay,
1: a moment. Okay, we have to talk about this. So I woke up and I was rushing to the conference today, but uh, there was an article that came out from Newsweek, I think, and they claimed to have found someone who was actually named Satoshi Nakamoto, lives in California, is a libertarian, and, um, and made Bitcoin. Although there was no confirmation in th- this article from my skimming of it. That the guy didn't admit, like, yes, I am Satoshi. They just kind of pegged him as Satoshi. Which, yeah, I
2: my mean, my he understanding. He wants
1: to be anonymous. Come on. Absolutely. Leave him alone.
2: As far as I know, and I read the article, but it's not really even the greatest article. Um, I think
1: it's. Crap. I mean, I don't think it's true, but we'll see.
2: Right? I, I don't know what to think. There are two things that I think are are odd about it, and that I can't place. Um, the first thing is that Gavin uh, basically made a tweet about it, Gavin Andresen, about uh, his he was giving condolences to the, the Nakamoto family. I don't know if that's because this family, whether or not it is Satoshi, is going to have to deal with massive repercussions now.
1: I think that's, yeah. It
2: might be the case. Uh, might, I'm on the fence about it. And then the second thing is that it seemed to be pretty well-researched. It seemed like the, the, the reporter had at least spoken to like 20 or 30 people to narrow it down.
1: Well, the key to a good lie is details, right? And... You know, we'll see if those details are actually verified. You
2: know? Yeah, and the other thing is that if you look at the, uh, the, the... Apparently they found, like, forum posts from this Satoshi Nakamoto, not necessarily the cryptographer Satoshi, and they don't match. They're totally uh, different English uh, usages of words and, like, different uh, pronunciations and... Uh, structures. So I don't know. I mean, that could be the work of a brilliant person trying to create multiple trails, but I'm, I'm on the fence. But I think it's interesting. I think it's unfortunate that as a community, we're trying to focus on the celebrity aspect as opposed to the technology aspect, but such as yeah, like I think life. that's
1: one of the smartest things that Satoshi could have done for Bitcoin. It's not about him. It's about Bitcoin.
2: Yeah, you got to disappear. You got to basically take away the ammunition of anybody who wants to challenge the platform and let it stand on its own merits. So Satoshi, if you're out there listening and, uh, you know, you're not the actual guy that was named in the article today, uh, we're with you. Keep hiding. I want to see if those coins move, though.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Solidarity with uh, the real Satoshi. Yeah, absolutely. And the and the... Uh, the- uh, rogue candidate Satoshi. What, what do you call it? when <laughs>
2: uh, The Satoshi stand in, let's the call Satoshi
1: it. Satoshi stand in, yes. The fall guy. <laughs> Solidarity with the Fall Guy, yeah. too.
2: Even, you know, even from the perspective of perhaps being uh, like a planned Fall Guy, uh, that actually gets the heat off of the real Satoshi if you want to go into the conspiracy realm. But who knows? Who knows?
1: indeed we'll find out more as time goes on and uh i think we got to get ready for this uh, charity luncheon that's coming up so kyle thank you for coming on let's talk bitcoin as always yeah thank
2: you for having me and uh keep up the good work you guys are doing a great service so
1: great to talk with you thank you and cointalk.ca is that your site
2: cointalk.ca or just uh, google us or go to youtube type in cointalk one of the first things you find and if you're interested in the offline wallet you can check out their site at cryptocards.co excellent thank you so much
1: I'm talking with Haseeb Awan from BitAccess. They are a manufacturer of Bitcoin ATMs, and they've already rolled some out in Ottawa, right? Based out of Ottawa.
3: Uh, yeah, we're based out of Ottawa, but we have machines right now in Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa, Geneva, Winnipeg, uh, and we should be launching in Dubai, Slovenia, Belgium, Mexico, Sydney, Melbourne, uh, and Colorado, and uh, a couple of other countries, Panama, uh, within two weeks.
1: Okay, so, and we're here at the Texas Bitcoin Conference, but this, you know, I don't know when this will air, but we're at the Texas Bitcoin Conference now. So what goes into manufacturing Bitcoin ATMs? Like, what kind of, tell me about the security features and the features of the ATM itself. What does it do?
3: Sure, so the machine that, uh, we have a two-way machine, which means that you can buy and sell Bitcoin. The unique proposition of our machine is, uh, you can have a hot wallet in the machine, so the transaction time is pretty faster than other a competitor. Second thing we have, we have a recycle in our machine, which means you have lower operational expenses. So the money that goes into a machine is the money that goes out. So the operator doesn't have to fill in the dispenser and catch it print and put it in a dispenser. So that's the unique proposition of our machine. On top of it, our machine upcoming machine will have a safe, uh, uh, ink bomb, uh, alarm. Uh, if someone wants to break in. Uh, GPS in the machine. So these are all the security features on the hardware side. Uh, so if someone tries to walk away
1: with it, break into it, or anything like that, they'll, they'll be prevented from doing it.
3: Uh, well, I don't think that anyone can walk away with that. It's like <laughs> 300 and 400 pounds. Okay. So, and it's <laughs> bolted to the floor. So okay. So <laughs> someone has to really, uh, like, you know, pretty much have to do a lot of effort and right yeah
1: so, okay and so that's interesting that you're, you know these products are in a lot of different places around the world yeah. um, is it do you have like if you're using this in the US do you have to what do you have to do give up your soul
3: your fingerprints or no so our machines uh, you uh, there's transaction limits cuz we follow Fentrack and fincen regulations. so up to transaction of $3000 we only take telephone number so uh, so we send you a text message on your phone just to verify your number. You have to enter that code in order to uh, proceed. And then beyond $3,000, you have to take your ID. We scan your ID and face match, make sure that it's the right person. Uh, but for smaller transaction, it's just a text message. We don't take biometric because... Uh, there is no way uh, people are sketchy about that, and it's not a requirement of any kind of regulation at this point of time. Wow, yeah. So, uh, like, you know, uh, uh, like I won't personally give my fingerprint, right?
1: Yeah, me neither.
3: <laughs> yeah, there's not like uh, something. So we don't take uh, fingerprints at all.
1: Okay, so, so just to be clear, if somebody does a transaction that's less than $3,000, they would only have to give their phone number?
3: That's right. Okay. But being said so, these regulations can change because they are not, uh, defined by they uh, are defined right. by the government,
1: right? So, and that's the U.S. government, right? But does does the same thing apply in Canada or in South America? So,
3: uh, right now, we're working on. We are following the one in Canada, right? Three thousand dollars. So, but at the same time, it could be changed two thousand dollars. But even like for smaller transactions, like I I don't believe it will kick in for like five hundred dollars, three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars. Uh, again, you know, we can set it up anytime we want. Like we can change those limits according to government.
1: Right. Okay. And so how, how are the ones that are out there doing right now, like the ones that are actually trading um, in, where are they located and how are, how are they doing?
3: Yeah. So uh, right now, as I said, we have one in Winnipeg, Ottawa, Toronto, uh, uh, Switzerland, uh, Montreal. So we have these locations. Roughly, we are doing around like last month, we had around transaction of $500,000 on our machines. And but it's a one-way right now, so they'll be moved to convert it to two-way, and which will volume will increase. And so this is roughly like we are estimating we will be doing around probably hundred thousand dollars per day uh, within like next two months, uh, increasing because our volume is increasing and we are working on something. We have limited our machines to uh, to one way right now, so that's the reason.
1: Oh, which way is
3: that? So, like, it's only one way right now. You can only buy Bitcoin, but okay, the machine that would be launched, like, in within this week would have two-way function.
1: Okay, okay. And where are they located? Like, restaurants, bars? Uh, it,
3: it, so, the one in Toronto is uh, located in Bitcoin Decentral, managed by Anthony Delorio. Uh So, it's in an incubator. Uh, the one in Ottawa is in, in a pub. Uh, the one in Winnipeg is in a pizza place. Uh, the one in Montreal is in Bitcoin Embassy. So the one uh, in Geneva is also, I believe, in a in a kind of an office space incubator. Uh-huh. So pretty much they are in office. We are focused on selling machines or like becoming like you know the people who are already in the space.
1: Great. And where can people find the company online?
3: Uh, so they can go on bitaccess.co, b i t a c c e double dot co, and they can use this contact form to contact us.
1: Great. Right, okay. Uh, and one more question. How much, if somebody wants to buy one of these, how much does it cost?
3: Yeah. So our machine, uh, we have different models uh, with a $7,000 model, $12,000 and $15,000 model.
1: Okay. Thank you so much, oh, see I appreciate your time. Thank you.
3: Bye. Thank you.
2: CryptoKit is the world's first Chrome browser Bitcoin wallet. It's the easiest, fastest Bitcoin wallet payment system. With a simple one-click install, it takes just seconds to get your wallet set up. And because CryptoKit finds the address and payment for you, there's no more fussing around or tab switching. CryptoKit is more than just a wallet. It comes with a preloaded PGP-encrypted social network, news feeds from Reddit and Google, and up-to-date charts from exchanges. Finally, CryptoKit directory allows you to make two-click payments with any of the BitPay merchants. Once you install CryptoKit, you won't need anything else. For more information or to download CryptoKit, visit CryptoKit.com.
4: The BitGive Foundation is a nonprofit charitable giving organization leveraging the power of the Bitcoin community to improve public health and the environment worldwide. Help us demonstrate the significant impact of Bitcoin in addressing these critical issues on a global scale. Support international giving in Bitcoin. Please visit our website at www.bitgivefoundation.org. That's www.bitgivefoundation.org. Welcome to Smart Law. A show about using decentralized consensus systems like the Bitcoin protocol to reshape the legal system. I'm Pamela Morgan, attorney, entrepreneur, and educator. Thanks for joining me. Today I want to talk about something really exciting. I want to talk about using the blockchain as a proof of existence for legal documents. This already exists at ProofOfExistence.com. And proof of existence allows you to record the existence of a document in the blockchain. You can prove that the document existed on a certain date and you can prove that the document that you have in your possession is in fact the original document that was uploaded to the blockchain. This is important for a number of reasons and it's applicable in a number of legal areas. One area is in estate planning. Many times my clients come to me for estate planning. Which basically means drawing up a will, drawing up a power of attorney, those sorts of things. And a will simply directs an executor on how to distribute assets upon passing. Some of the issues that surround having a valid will include proper attestation, authentication, forgery, making sure that the document that you have is the most recent, storage, and then proving the existence of the will itself. A valid will will be dated and signed. It'll also be authentic and not modified. So how can the proof of existence on the blockchain help us to prove these things? Well, one, if we upload a PDF or unmodifiable version of a document, that document will be time-stamped on the blockchain. And so we'll have proof that that document existed at that day on that time, and you can use the e-signature to make sure that the document was dated and signed appropriately. By using the blockchain and the proof of existence feature, you can prove that this document existed on a certain day. And if you have the original, you can prove through hashing SHA-256 that the file exists unmodified. This is important because many times wills are contested due to a forgery or some sort of modification to the will. And so this technology exists on the blockchain now. We can use it now to help our clients. I tested this out myself. I wanted to see what the process, you know, what the process was like, and it was fast and easy. I simply took a document, went to proofofexistence.com, uploaded the document, followed the instructions. I paid 0.005 bitcoin ended up to be approximately $3.12. I added a a small token for the miners, ended up costing me $3.74, and I now have a proof on the blockchain that my document exists. I can go back, and I did go back, and verify the contents of that document and made sure that the hash does equal, and it in fact does. So I feel like using this technology today is a great way for attorneys to ensure that documents are proved and it's a much faster, simpler, and more effective way than recording these type of documents with the city. Uh, one of the benefits of using proof of existence is that the contents of your documents remain confidential and that's a big deal for clients and attorneys. So by posting Or by using the blockchain to prove the existence of this document, you're not disclosing the contents of the document. Instead, you're simply disclosing that there is a document, that I have it, and the document that I have is exactly what was uploaded on that date. This is very important to protect confidentiality. There are so many ways that we can use the blockchain in law. There are so many ways we can use it today. And there are so many opportunities to develop the technology further. The peer-to-peer decentralized consensus system allows us to move the justice system, not only as attorneys, but also for clients. I look forward to exploring more of those ways. Thanks for joining me for Smart Law. See you next time.
1: This is Stephanie. I'm at the Texas Bitcoin Conference and I'm talking with Ryan Nill. Hi, Ryan. Welcome to the show.
5: How's it going, Stephanie? Thanks for talking.
1: You had an article published on Let's Talk Bitcoin recently about housing cooperatives. Is that right?
5: Well, it was more about the, the cooperative movement in general and how I think that it has a kind of collaborative community asset-based like ideology and how that matches very much with Bitcoin and some of the other kind of new industries that are arising how you could get some basically cooperative and emergent effects from it. Um,
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with you there. And can you tell me a little bit about the cooperative housing project that you worked on?
5: Yeah, so I work with a a community called La Reunion Cooperative Apartments. We're located in Austin, Texas, here where the Bitcoin conference is currently going on. Um, We've been around for almost a year, our birthday's in a month. And what we did is we took a, a kind of run-down apartment complex and the housing market in Austin's really booming and it's a seller's market so it's really hard to find good affordable housing and these kind of like old run down apartment complexes are getting bought up and redeveloped into luxury housing. So what we did is we went in there and we bought the property and we told all of and it was mostly like low income minority families that were living there and we told them that we're not kicking you out. We're new landlords but we're not going to like jack your rents up a ton. We're not going to like try to push you out. Um, But we do need you to be part of this cooperative. And basically, we're democratically managed, um, member-run and organized. And, um, you know, they they have a really powerful effect. The members aren't going to raise the rents themselves and self-exploit. The example that I always tell people is that there's been student cooperative housing in West Campus uh, for, for the University of Texas for 60 years. And if you compare their rents compared to the rents of the luxury apartments that they're building now it's like nearly double for the, ni- the nice ones. So it's about $1,000 for a one-bedroom suite and a 500 for the cooperative suite.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and what
5: about the quality of the living conditions? I mean... Well, so, um, when we bought it, like, we, we kind of had, a, it had a shady landlord and she didn't really want to tell us, like, what was wrong with it, obviously, because that would decrease the value of the property. So when we bought it, half of the units had, like, bed bug infestations. Oh, no. Yeah, it was terrible. I mean, there was a roach problem. There was a dude who didn't have AC, and this is, like, April in Texas, and it's hot. And, you know, all these problems. People's doors don't work. They've been kicked down a few times. So we get there, and, you know, we're trying to tell them about this new, empowering landlord, and they're like, this just kind of sounds like some more weird social control that we're used to. Yeah. And, uh... But, you know, after like three weeks, we solved the bed bug problem, you know, we fixed some doors, we buy some... Portable AC units for the guy who had it broken and kind of fix it up. And after about three weeks, they're like, "Yeah, you guys are way better than the previous landlord."
1: So, kind of gaining some trust in the community. Yeah, for sure. So, with I know there are many different ways to kind of um, organize and manage co-ops. Mm-hmm. Like they're all member-owned and democratically controlled. But yeah. like within that, there are different ways to structure how decisions get made. So, yeah. like tell me about how it how it works day to day.
5: For sure, um, we we use a pretty traditional kind of. Democratic majority vote system. Um, So, you know, we have meetings every Sunday and you can bring up anything. And so, for example, I'm the treasurer. And recently I I reached out to the Bitcoin 100. And the conversation that we had at the meeting was, you know, over dinner. And I was like, hey, guys, these guys are going to give us $1,000 if we put a Bitcoin donation button on our website. And they're like, that sounds cool. You should do that. And, you know, a couple weeks later, I had done that. And could you just imagine going to any other commercial development and being like, hey, you guys should take Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, well, we have to ask our lawyers and our board of directors and it's probably not going to happen. Yeah,
5: that's probably the answer you'd get. <laughs> Precisely. And, and you know, I think when you're not when you're dealing with people who are members and consumers and workers and institutions, you're a lot more likely to get kind of support and buy in for, you know, what people consider qu- crazy, wacky out their ideas. Like, like a lot of people consider Bitcoin right now.
1: Yeah. And so... Everyone who lives there would be a member of the co-op?
5: Yeah, so the membership dues are essentially rent. So if you pay rent there and live there, you are a voting member.
1: Okay, so is that kind of a way for people to have a little more ownership over the the apartment that they're living in? Instead, you know, instead of just kind of paying a landlord and being really not responsible in any way for the future of that property?
5: Yeah, exactly. So, you know... I mean, I kind of, at first we kind of called ourselves the maintenance co-op because we had seven, like five to ten different members who were working on maintenance. And yeah, so people really get engaged. Part of membership is that you have to do labor. So we typically require two to four hours of labor uh, a week. And that's how you get the cost savings because, you know, if you got, we have 34 resident members right now. So that adds up to, you know, probably a hundred hours a week of labor. And it's essentially free. and those labor savings go directly into lower rents.
1: Yeah, that's that's really cool. Did anyone leave or move out because they didn't want to join the co-op?
5: Yeah, there was a few people and um, we probably retained about a third of the original tenants, so two-thirds moved out, and some of them were just because they, they had to move, they wanted to move, and it had nothing to do with us. Some of them probably thought it was kind of weird and they didn't have, you know, they're they're mostly living in poverty, a lot of them, and they didn't have working sixty hours a week like it's just hard to find those extra two or four hours and we still struggle with that and you know a lot of people work really hard and have other projects so it's kind of sometimes hard to bring it back to the co-op so we had people leave like that and then there's just you know we we bought the people who are into co-ops in Austin um, because since it comes from a college community that's kind of the genesis of it here you tend to see white and educated folk And so that was kind of the founders were mostly white and educated. So you had to deal with, like, class and race issues. So some people kind of moved out because of that tension. So, but, you know, the people that stayed, you know, we got got some people who are elderly. um, You got some kids running around, like, five-year-olds running around. So this is actually, you know, very diverse compared to the traditional cooperative community.
1: Yeah. Um, What if, like, have you had a problem with too many people wanting to live there?
5: That's actually a huge problem with housing co-ops in Austin. And that's one of the main reasons we bought this. We actually have a wait list with probably like 10, 20 people. So, so we, but you can't raise the rent. No, right? no, yeah. we can't, we, we're not going to. We're not, Wouldn't want to. No, because the members would be exploiting themselves if they did that. And you know, you're not going to get people to vote to do that to themselves. And so the, the solution is to build more of cooperative housing stock It's just difficult because when you tell investors, oh, hey, we're not going to give you control and don't expect, you know, the huge return, expect more modest returns, it's a bit harder to get money in those kind of situations. And that's kind of the drawback in the current economy.
1: Right. So um, do you tell like, is there a Bitcoin community there? Do you tell people about Bitcoin? Do they know about Bitcoin?
5: Um, So... At first it was mostly just me because I was really into it and you know it's easy to sell people on it when I can tell them it's free money Um, but there was there was a member who had already had some Bitcoin previously that once I you know told him about it he was excited about it one of our new associates actually paid his membership dues in Bitcoin using the donate button on our website so it's not like a huge community but you know it was easy to set up and you know, it doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah. So, And then
1: they, does the co-op like vote
5: on what to do with the
1: Bitcoin or this in the same way that they would vote on what to do with the rent or do they vote on that?
5: Um, so I actually just, when, when I knew we were getting $1,000, I just allocated it. Um, we were very conservative in our budget making when we bought the place because we didn't know what the real costs of managing this place would be. And we only really allocated money for like maintenance. So we have a food program. Um, we actually get donations from a program called Keep Austin Fed and they bring us food that would have been thrown away. Um, wow. so, so we got a lot of like good social programs and those things need budgets and they don't have budgets. And one of the things is we want to set up an internet infrastructure because you know, if you're poor and you need a job, the internet's pretty much the only way to go about doing that yeah. nowadays. So so the thousand dollars is actually going to set up a mesh network that we're hoping can start to, you know, so that people in the other complexes around our complex can uh can access internet and we're actually working with the I think they're called the Free Network Foundation and they set up the the mesh network that the Occupy Wall Street people use to get their internet from.
1: Cool. Wow. Well that's really exciting. <laughs> Um, Is there anything else you want to add, and where can people get in touch with you if they want to find out more?
5: So um, you can go to La La Reunion, um, that's spelled like it is in English, um, co-op.org, to find out more. You can donate Bitcoin, and you're totally welcome to come check us out. And if you want to be a member, come to our meetings on uh, Sunday at 7 o'clock.
1: Cool. Ryan, thanks so much for talking about this with me.
5: Thank you, Stephanie.
6: This is Chris Joseph bringing you news on NEXT, the first true second-generation cryptocurrency for April 1st, 2014. The NEXT blockchain passed block 100,000 this past week. And this week, the third and final part of BC Next's plan for Next will be released. Originally, Next was not going to become fully open source until this week, but the source code was made public last month instead. Since that release, the community has put pressure on client developers to release source code for their clients as well. And five clients have stepped up to the plate. These clients are the new JavaScript client for Next, Offspring, Client Next, and Next Freerider, all of which are cross platform, and Next Solaris, which is available for Mac OS and Windows. You can find all of these clients and their source codes at nextclients.org. For more general information on Next, head to nextcrypto.org or mynxt.org. And stay tuned for more news on Next on the next Let's Talk Bitcoin broadcast.
1: Okay, this is Stephanie Murphy for Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm here at the Texas Bitcoin Conference talking with Angela Keaton from antiwar.com. Hi, Angela. Hey, Stephanie. Thanks so much for being on Let's Talk Bitcoin. Uh, Tell me about what you do at Antiwar and how that relates to Bitcoin.
7: Well, at antiwar.com, all we do is gather news, views, all kinds of opinions and activism on US foreign policy, and that's our total focus. So 24-7, we have Readers from all over the world, but one of the things we do is like we try to like through our activism kind of get people to think about war. Now we are libertarians. We're not a libertarian site. We represent all ideologies. But as libertarians, we try to get people to think a little differently about things, right? Like about the dollar, federal reserve note, how much that is tied to funding the warfare state. Like how much of your taxes goes to the largest welfare program of them all, the empire. And that's, of course, it's it's the welfare program that kills children, um, occupies countries, tortures, and just creates all kinds of death and destruction. So, why? not do something differently to you know, we love money, right? I love money, I'm sorry, I do. Um, I like having wealth, I like having, you know it, but I, and to me in medium exchange I'm not sentimental about it, I mean whatever, it's a paper dollar, it's something else, it's a seas- seashell, who cares, right? <laughs> but it's, I'm, I'm excited, I'm, I'm just very, very excited about the future just as a, as a human being, even if I weren't at antiwar.com, to think that there are ways of doing things where I'm not involving myself further in the empire. So as part of Bitcoin, you know, one of the groups that of represented the umbrella of Bitcoin, not bombs, um, along with great groups like FreeAid. Um, we are just, I mean, really teaching people to think, think differently. And of course it, people, the kind of people who are early adopters of Bitcoin, not bombs, these are people who are very progressive in their thinking and very forward thinking. So that, it was just an easy match. It's a really, really good match.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you mentioned something today at the charity luncheon that we had here at the Texas Bitcoin conference about peace dollars. And when I hear the term peace dollar, um, I've definitely heard the term war dollar before, the contrasting term. But there is actually like a silver piece that people refer to as peace dollars. Do you know the history of that? Can you tell me more
7: about you know, it? No, I wish I did know the history of that. Though, um, so, I mean, if anyone has any of them, we'd be happy to take them at antiwar.com and then I can learn more about about the history of the peace. No, I, w- I wish I did. I, a lot of the, I'm, I'm shamefully uh, ignorant of, of some of the anti-war movement apart from legal and political aspects, so. Um, but this conference, all, I mean, the last time I went to a, bit, a, a Bitcoin convention was in the San Jose, uh, May of 20, 2013. And I, you know, I was very skeptical, and I was you know, I was always very skeptical, even when I first adopted Bitcoin. I said, at anti we're calling this the Bitcoin experiment. You know, I was not getting married to it. I, you know, this is, it, if it didn't work, I'd write about that too on the blog saying, yeah, okay, this is a bad idea, or a tweet or something about it. Because, you know, we, at anti come we don't, you know, we just, if we, if we've made a mistake or we don't like something, we just say, okay, well, this is why we're gonna do this differently now. So, that um, was that skeptical. I was that in, you know, I, I, you know, I didn't, um, you know, I, I mean, I've seen alternative currencies in different forms, uh, and, and, you know, coming out of different ideological movements. And how do you get people, you know, how do you compete against the dollar, which obviously has lost a lot of its luster anyway? But still, people are very emotionally attached to that, and it's part of their um, American identity, even if they're not consciously thinking about it. So, this with Bitcoin too being an international currency. I kind of like, you know, the whole notion is very silly, kind of sentimental libertarian ideas about free trade, but how that sort of thing creates positive interactions between people and, and different nations, and that's the sort of mentality you need to have to, hum, you know, to see people as humans, so that we don't have more war.
1: Right. So trade uh, decreases the likelihood of war. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, so. This is really interesting. There's a lot of different uh, directions we can go with this. But I, I want to just touch on the fact that antiwar.com has been uh, under FBI surveillance. Some of the members, you
7: radicals, you <laughs> trying to get peace in the world. Well, you know, I don't want to scare people off. But one of the things that, that my main you know, reason, well, there's a couple of reasons for, for why we took Bitcoin. I mean, why I wanted the experiment. One. Donor demand. Donors kept asking, and you know, people. You know, I said, okay. Well, you know, it seems like it's getting a little bit of pickup. Let's serve. Let's serve our donors. These are our readers. I mean, these are the people who go out. They take our ideas and they go act upon them. So, you know, yes. Let's look into this and and give this a chance and see. Uh, but also, I mean, privacy. People want privacy now. You know, they're gonna have to pry. You know, the. Our donor lists out of my uh, cold, dead hands, um, which is why the, you know one of the reasons in, uh, why the eight were so grateful the ACLU took our case. Um, yeah uh, anti- it 's a very long story but antiwarcom has uh, been under investigation by the FBI and uh, are my uh, the founders of the organizations and my boss have seen the various files and we 're many of the files or and it 's all mostly whited out blacked out it's all quite quite um, i don't know the whole thing's rather ominous and weird but I know that everyone's being spied upon when you think they're paying extra special attention to you it is kind of creepy and throughout most of my activist life i've just deliberately kind of lived in denial about what surveillance is, like, whatever, there's a million and one activists, who cares, right? I mean, there's, the chances of it being you are pretty small, until, of course, it's your boss, and then you think about it very differently. So it, it's it, with Bitcoin, there is none of that. I mean, it's you can do Bitcoin to Bitcoin transfers. People don't have to know what your politics are. You don't have to explain it to your accountant. You don't have to explain it to your husband. You don't have to explain to anyone. It's something you did. Um, that's pro peace. And the thing is, I mean, where we can get, you know, antiwar.com, it kind of lowers our transaction costs. If, you know, if I can do something via Bitcoin, you know, I don't have to use, let's say, maybe PayPal or some of the things that have a cost attached to them. And those, all those things add up. I and mean, we have those things because our donors, you know, many of them love PayPal. That was one time the very hot thing was PayPal, um, or some of these other methods of payment that. People who are kind of on the, you know, who tend to be out of the computer world, you know, sort of more of the forward thinkers, I was thinking about the general Bitcoin, Bitcoin people generally, um, they, you know, they want to try all these things. We try, you know, we try all these things, but still the issue of, um, you know, it costs to do business. It It costs money to run a nonprofit you know it takes staff to do things and it keeps i mean it's difficult but if we cut out somebody's transaction costs it saves us money it doesn't take as much you know it can help you know keeps our budget in check so i, I know i can see too many downsides at this point um beyond the fact that yeah we're, i guess we're all speculators and we're all part of a much larger experiment but whether i like it or not cryptocurrencies here i mean it wouldn't matter even if you know i mean i was a skeptic but i mean in but it did, didn't matter i mean the world's going to change. It'd be like not accepting cars at one time. Like, oh, you know, I'm going to do a horse and buggy. I mean, it, it... You know. Right. So. Yeah, I mean, I was really interested
1: in the donor privacy aspects because... I know that one of the reasons that a lot of people got interested in Bitcoin in the first place was when uh, WikiLeaks was cut off by, very famously, by PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, and like literally 97% of the global financial network at that time, uh, you couldn't send a payment to WikiLeaks, and it was all done extra legally. Nobody said WikiLeaks is illegal now. It was all just pressure from the U.S. government, and that's all it takes, really, for politically unpopular organizations that are interested in freedom. And I know that there are some people who wanted to support WikiLeaks or perhaps wanted to support Defense Distributed, who was doing, you know, the Cody Wilson's thing, 3D printed firearms, or even Planned Parenthood and just didn't want other people to know about it because they didn't want to be judged or whatever. And... uh, I imagine anti-war. It might be like that. You know, some people might want to support that organization, but want to do so privately, so they can now do that with Bitcoin. It,
7: it, it is true. I mean, there are people. And by the way, I mean we lost we lost donors because the FBI, because of the FBI's investigation. Once that became yeah. public, because they, and these are you know generally people of means too who. Just thought, you know what? I'm, why court trouble in my life? Especially if you're very established. Especially if you have a lot to lose. Like, why ask for trouble? So you lose some major donors that way. And it, maybe I understood. I mean, what was I going to say? Now, even though I would never, you know, release names. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, we, we're never going to know, what the, I'm, I'm skeptical on that too, it's just I don't think we're ever going to know exactly what the government's keeping track of on, on antiwar.com. I try not to give it really much thought beyond the interest, you know, what's important to report about the case as it's pro- progressing, but I try not to think too hard about that aspect of working there, because otherwise it, it would change the way I interact with people. But with Bitcoin, you know, it is changing the way we interact, it, it allows us to buy, you know, it, it allows people to do things like... On Silk Road, I uh, had a friend who had needed medic- actual medication. You know, if you don't have health insurance, it's really hard to buy a lot of medications. Bitcoin, you know, that's that's a solution. I mean, it's a solution to a problem. Um, so I, I, it's, I think it's a great thing for anti-war activists. It's a great thing for people who are, um, you know, in the tech world. Uh, all these things. I mean, this is the, this is this is just a wonderful way of, of doing business, and uh, that's important. I like I like doing business. I'm. I'm a big fan of it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. All right. Well, antiwar.com is your website. And anything else you want to tell the audience? Oh, no. Thank you, Stephanie, so much for having me today. I appreciate it. Angela Keaton from antiwar.com. Thank you so much. This is Stephanie from Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm here talking with Ty Zen from Next. Yeah. Hi, Ty.
8: Hey, uh, how's it going, guys? Uh, glad to have you here. We've been trying to reach out to you guys for a while now, so glad to meet up here at the Texas uh, Bitcoin Conference.
1: Yeah, it's great to talk to you, too. We are at the Texas Bitcoin Conference. And what is Next for someone who's never heard of it?
8: Okay, so Next is a second-generation uh, cryptocurrency, and it's a 100% uh, second-generation. It is not a knockoff of the uh, Bitcoin source code. It's not a duplicate. It's not a copy and paste. The inventor of the next uh, source code is a uh, person named BC Next, And we think that he's from Europe or from Russia somewhere. And it's a completely new source code that's written in a completely different language. It's in uh, Java. And so it's not like the other uh, altcoins that you see.
1: Right, so this has been designed from the ground up, and it, it has some different features that are not included in Bitcoin 2 at the current moment. Yes. Is that right?
8: Yes, exactly. What happened was that uh, BC Next uh, saw that there was a lot of features that was missing from the uh, Bitcoin uh, protocol. So when he created this, uh, um, and I say he could be a sheep, yeah. we don't know. Okay, it's anonymous.
1: Like Satoshi from Next, yeah.
8: Yeah. Um, so BC uh, Next uh, created this uh, source code called Next. And he did it from scratch, uh, f- uh, and he built in all the features into it that was not available in the Bitcoin uh, source code, and also the things that the features that you cannot add to the Bitcoin source code now because it would drastically affect, you know, a lot of people.
1: And yeah, when I said that, I was talking about messaging and a distributed exchange. Is that right?
8: Yes, they have a messaging system. They have a right now. The biggest thing that they're working on is the peer-to-peer uh, asset exchange because of the situation with Mount Gox, you know. And there's a big demand in the market for a peer-to-peer exchange that has a, a transparency to it and that's not centralized. So that's uh, they have the test net out, and people can. Go to the uh, next uh, thread at uh, Bitcoin Talk or go to uh, nextcoin.org or my, uh, nextcrypto.org, and they can sign up and test, use the testnet and help develop it.
1: Wow. So. so, I mean, a lot of people are talking about doing distributed exchanges with Bitcoin, but yes. this is actually already happening? Yes, it's, next. A, it's
8: yeah. already, uh, there's already a, uh, I'm not sure if it's uh, the alpha version. Uh, you know, I'm not a coder, I'm not a developer. I just help with the marketing team but I know that they have the test net out and I've seen a lot of people test it already. They're actually right now in the process of testing uh, uh, exchanging uh, Dogecoins and other altcoins through the asset exchange so it's really exciting times and there's there's a lot of development going on. Such wow.
1: Yeah, such wow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. so um, every Next wallet is a brain wallet by default. Is that right? Yes, um, BC Next uh, uh, decided
8: that to avoid confusion and everything, they set it up as a um, as a uh, brain wallet initially. Uh, right now, there are seven clients or seven uh, wallets that's been uh, put out, and diff- they have they all use some type of brain wallet. Which, uh, you know, for the, the the listeners, the brain wallet is a where you just put in the long uh, password, and that creates the entire account. So, in order for you to activate a next account. Um, you would have to create it, and then myself or somebody else that owns Next would have to send you a few Next coins so that it activates your account.
1: Yeah, or you could buy them on an exchange like Cripsy, right? Or BTER, yes.
8: right? Yeah, you can buy it from Cripsy, uh, you can buy it on uh, BTER.com, or you can buy it on, on uh, DGEX, which is the first uh, Next exchange.com, and send it to yourself, and that will activate the account also. So,
1: so yeah, so tell me about uh, the the sending and receiving of Next because I know that there's um, it, there's there's not like mining like there is with Bitcoin with Next they have something called no. transparent forging right yes
8: and the transparent forging is completely different from the uh, Bitcoin mining Bitcoin mining that serves two purposes uh, one, well several purposes one is to process the Bitcoin transactions to secure the network and to mint new coins the Next uh, transparent forging. Is very uh, uh, unique and very revolutionary because instead of minting new coins, the only thing that it does is it uses what's called a proof of stake uh, process. And what that does is it only allows uh, you to process transactions. There's no new Next coins created. Um, there's a billion Next coins that were created from the original source code on the day that it was launched and released, and that's it. So everybody just recycles those one billion coins.
1: And so, how did the coins get distributed? I think the, that's something people want to know okay, about. So,
8: there's a big controversy with the uh, Next because the uh, 1 billion Next coins were distributed through uh, similar to what an IPO process is. And so, BC Next um, put up an announcement for a certain period of time. I think it was like a month or a month and a half where. If you, uh, he was trying to raise 21 bitcoins, and if you were willing to send in one bitcoin, you got that percentage of the 1 billion next. So it's a proportional and percentage-wise base. So a lot of people say that it's pre-mined and they have a, a, an issue with that. So
1: there's only 21 people that got next in the first round, is that what you're saying? No, 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 it's not 21 people.
8: It's, if you sent in half of a Bitcoin or a quarter of a Bitcoin or a tenth of a Bitcoin, you got that percentage oh, I of see. the 1 billion next. Got it, okay. Okay, so no, it's not 21 people. There were actually 73 original stakeholders and they all sent in the next. Right uh, during that IPO uh, period, and during that time, the BC Next distributed, and there there's I think around 13 million or so that were unclaimed. So whoever sent in the bitcoins uh, to get Next started, they didn't claim it. So we use the community. The Next has a very strong community, and they use those 13 million um, unclaimed Next coins and to to, to develop uh, the infrastructure and for marketing. Mm-hmm. So.
1: Wow, that's really interesting. Yes. Okay, so the the clients for Next, Mm -hmm. there's seven clients out that you mentioned, and this seems like they're really prolific with coming out with these clients. It's only a few months old, and now there's already lots of different ways to use it.
8: Yes, it's one of the more uh, popular uh, uh, second generation currencies, and after a hundred, like around hundred days now that it's been out on the market, um, there have been very. uh, uh, There's a lot of developers that enjoy the fact that Next is not a copycat of Bitcoin and that it's an original source code. So the people that are looking to pour their time and effort and uh, coding abilities uh, into an altcoin, they chose Next because of its uh, non-copycat nature. And so right now we have uh, approximately seven clients. Um, A lot of them are open source, so their code can be reviewed. Um, But they're being in development right now. And you can go to... uh, nextclient.com, I think, or nextclient.org. It's one of those sites. It contains all seven of the clients that people can choose from. Or you can go to any of the uh, uh, nextcoin.org or nextcrypto.org and find those clients also.
1: Okay. And there is an actual store where you can buy stuff with Next. Is that right? I've
8: seen that. Uh, I haven't seen that yet. You know, I mean, the developments in the next community are coming so fast that it's, it's kind of hard. It's challenging to keep up with everything, too. So yeah. uh, now that you mentioned it, now I'm aware that there's a next store.
1: So, <laughs> oh, great. Okay. So. <laughs> well, um, speaking of open source, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the next, uh, I don't know what you call it, the, the next code became yeah, source open code. source recently, right? Yes. Um, there's something
8: that's very unique about the next uh, source code when next was released they did two things that i thought that was pretty cool about it one was that they purposely injected it with three security flaws at different levels okay so they did that on purpose and they announced it to the community so that and the reason why they did that was because if anybody wanted to copycat the uh, source code when it was launched it would be a problem because the source code has three security flaws in it and at the same time, those three security flaws was also an invitation. Uh, they, they put that in there to invite people in the, the, in the uh, crypto community to inspect the source code, and whoever found those security flaws would receive a very large bounty. So it's, it's to you know, prevent copycats. It's to, uh, for security reasons. They did that. And the other thing that they did with uh, the next source code that was uh, very uh, unique is that they made it so that they were several versions ahead. So whatever features, they, when they came out, the, the, uh, the alias system, the messaging system, every time they came out with a new feature, they would be two or three, like a couple of features ahead before they released the source code. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that they were always ahead. So that if somebody tries to copy it, because you know as well as I do that a lot of people are trying to copy these different uh, codes that people come out with, sure, and they're not willing to put in the time and the effort to develop it, but they're willing to copy other people's and change a few parameters. So, right. Those are the reasons why uh, the next source code was released the way it was.
1: That's interesting, wow. So, okay, I mean, what are your favorite things about Next? Why, do you, why are you passionate um, about it? The, the
8: biggest thing that drew me to uh, Next uh, was that I was looking for, uh, I thought that Bitcoin was one of the most revolutionary technologies that takes power away from the 1% on Wall Street and give it back to the 99% on Main Street. And I wanted to help pitch in uh, with Bitcoin, but I'm not a coder, I'm not a programmer, and I I come from a sales and marketing background, so I could not help out them with that because there's enough people on CNBC and Bloomberg to help promote Bitcoin. So what I did was I looked at the different altcoins and what was available um, that needed help. And I looked through hundreds of them and they all, to me, were just a copycat of Bitcoin. They had one or two features here, but there was nothing spectacular that got my attention. And my uh, colleague, uh, Leon, he introduced me to Next and he said, hey, you know you said you didn't want to work, uh, help with these other uh, altcoins because they were just a knockoff of, of uh, Bitcoin. Well, here's one that's not. It's an original source code. So I started looking and researching into uh, Next, and I saw how that uh, it was put together. At first, I was turned off by the uh, proof of stake, the pre-mine, the one billion coins that was distributed. and um, But then when I learned what the proof of stake was, it changed my mind, so I was able to get more uh, involved into it. And so here... Um, I'm actually here representing, uh, being an ambassador for Next. I I help out on their marketing efforts, so here I am at the uh, Texas Bitcoin Conference.
1: Great, Ty. Well, anything else you want to add about where do people find out more online Um, if they're
8: curious? The the, you know adoption of a new coin has always been the biggest uh, challenge for all the coins, and and so what I've done is if you go to uh, my uh, Freedom blog, it's at prisonorfreedom.com dot com uh, slash uh, you know two thousand and fourteen the Texas Bitcoin Conference. Um, I have the instructions there in a video there of how to download, verify, and install the next uh, client. And then if you leave a comment there, uh, if your audience leaves a comment there uh, with their NEXT account number, I will send them four uh, uh, NEXT uh, coins just to get their account started so they can see how it works.
1: Great. Very cool.
8: We have a very supportive community, and we like to help each other out. So if your uh, audience wants to test out uh, NEXT and see how it works, they're welcome to come to uh, PrisonerFreedom.com and uh, leave a comment with their account, and I'll send them some NEXT to try out
1: Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. This has been great.
8: And thanks for uh, having us on uh, Let's Talk uh, uh, Bitcoin. And, you know, look forward to, uh, uh, you know, seeing you guys again at the next conference.
1: Right, at the next conference.
0: Thanks for listening to episode 97 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Visit us at letstalkbitcoin.com for more content, subscribe to our feeds, tip our shows, and of course, try out all our other shows on the LTB network, like Paul Boyer's award-winning Mad Money Machine. At Nathan's Live Bitcoin Report every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, Dr. Stephanie Murphy and Brian Sovereign's Sex and Science Hour, and of course, the boys in Nashville serving up Bitcoins and gravy. Content for today's episode was provided by Stephanie Murphy, Pamela Morgan, Ryan Nil, Angela Keaton, Tai Zen, and Hassibowan. Special thanks to the Texas Bitcoin Conference for a great event. This episode was produced and edited by Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.